Obedience to the Word of God is an essential and functional necessity of the Christian life. That simply means doing what God says. Now, when I suggest that, I'm not suggesting that there are not scores of choices on a variety of issues that you and I are free to make. But there are some issues, some matters, some subjects that are cut and dry, they're black and white with no gray area whatsoever, so that the issue in question is not open to debate or discussion. And one of the important lessons that you and I need to learn is that a failure to obey the clear, precise directives of the Word of God brings with it tragic consequences. And anything less than full and complete obedience is sin in the eyes of God. Now hopefully, everything that I just said, you are in full and complete agreement. And yet, today, Christian couples actually pray about whether they should live together before marriage. Professing Christians pray about whether they should marry an unbeliever. Christian businessmen pray about whether to tell the truth regarding a business transaction. And I just want to say up front, in as clear language as I can possibly say, when the Word of God is clear, when it is direct and unambiguous, praying to discern God's will becomes a convenient excuse or even a prolonged filibuster to avoid doing what the Scriptures command. And sadly, today, the Word of God has been neutered. And the commandments of God are no longer in the driver's seat of the Christian's life, and they've been relegated to the back seat, if not the trunk. And they're sort of like a spare tire that we pull out only in case of emergencies. Can I just say flat out, up front, that for all true followers of Jesus Christ, Obedience to the Bible is not a peripheral, secondary, marginal issue. Obedience is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Obedience is the acid test of the authenticity of your faith. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And genuine love for Christ will always be manifested in obedience. And let me just add this as well, that disobedience is never a trivial matter. It's not our job to weigh the commands of God and decide which ones are important and which are optional. When God speaks clearly, directly, Absolutely nothing supersedes it. Now that truth is confirmed in a little-known, often neglected, and somewhat strange and admittedly seemingly unfair story that's found in 1 Kings chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 13. And what you find here is a story that revolves around primarily two prophets and a king. And there is a little phrase that is found in this chapter that if you were to read through it and I were to ask you to mark up what 
occurs most frequently, there would be two phrases. One is the term man of God, but the second is the phrase by the word of the Lord. Not going to take the time to point out all of them, but you can find them on your own. Now, before we look at this chapter, let me just briefly set the historical stage. After a little over a century, under the rules of Saul, David, and Solomon, the United Kingdom of Israel, that consisted of 12 tribes, endured a bloodless civil war. And those 12 tribes were split into two nations. Jeroboam established himself as the king of Israel, consisting of the northern ten tribes, while Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was left with the only with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But that kingdom had a trump card. And that is they had the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jeroboam, who was the ruler in the north, was worried that if he allowed his people to go to Jerusalem to worship, they might waver in their loyalty to him and once again give allegiance to Rehoboam. So he makes the decision, and you can read about this clearly at the end of chapter 12, he decides that he's going to establish two worship cities in his kingdom. In the city of Dan and Bethel. Bethel was just a short distance from Jerusalem while Dan was in the far north. Now, please understand that when, when this king did this, it's not the equivalent of planting two new churches in an effort to expand worship and opportunities for the people. Doing what he did was a direct violation of the command of God for all Israel. God had says that Israelis, that Jews, were to go up to the Solomonic Temple in Jerusalem three times a year, they were to meet with God there. They were to receive atonement for their sins. And what Jeroboam did is he sets up golden calves in the cities of Dan and Bethel, and he calls upon his people to worship God there. He built two of them, and he put one in each city. And he begins to lead the people in false worship, acting as a priest that was clearly forbidden. He wasn't a descendant of Aaron. And so he had no business whatsoever assuming a priestly role in the kingdom. He established a man-made religion. And when you come to 1 Kings 13, he's inaugurating his high altar at Bethel. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, who knows, maybe even 100,000 people were there from all over the new northern kingdom of Israel. And I imagine that it was a very dignified scene. There were the newly elected leaders. There was the proud king, the head of the nation. He was dressed, no doubt, in his finest royal robes. And he's ascending the stairs of this massive altar in order to burn incense before his gods. And just as Jeroboam was standing by that altar, maybe even with his hand outstretched to sort of toss that powdery incense into the flame with the crowd no doubt so quiet you could have heard a pin drop we're told that an unnamed unknown man shouts out and says in essence buddy you are a phony 
Uh, look at verse 1. I'm in 1 Kings 13. It says, By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel. As Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering, he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. By the way, there's our second occasion for that little phrase. Again, I'm not going to point them out as we read, but you can just follow them along. He, he cried out by the word of the Lord, by a command directed from God, O altar, O altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart, and the ashes on it will be poured out. You know what he's saying here? He's saying your altar is a sham. This religion that you've established with all of its outward appearances of something special is phony. And what's more, Jeroboam, you're masquerading as a man of God to perform these sacrifices and God knows you're a hypocrite and to prove my point... That fake altar is going to split in two. It's going to be destroyed in just a few moments. And indeed, it, it happened. Just as he said. Uh, by the way, let me just comment that this prophecy that was given in verses 2 and 3, and if you're taking notes, you can read this. It's fascinating to read was fulfilled exactly as this unnamed, unknown prophet of God prophesied. Its fulfillment is found in, uh, let me think, where's my, 2 Kings 23, 15 through 18. It happened almost 300 years later. In fact, 290 to be exact, in the 7th century B.C., Josiah became the king of Judah at the age of 8. And then at 18, he started a revival and you can read exactly what this prophet said, exactly find its fulfillment almost 300 years after he announces it. And there he is. You, you can just imagine the scene. And Jeroboam is there in this very same hand that was, was there at the altar. All of a sudden something happens to it. Look at verse 4. It says, when Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, seize him. I want that man out of here. I love this. But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. By the way, that's our third usage in this text of that. Now you can get, just, just, just imagine this happening. This guy has his hand out towards the altar. He hears this guy screaming at him and he turns around and he points and he says, I want that fella out of here. And as soon as he does that, his hand freezes in midair. And that proud king is rendered powerless 
as a masquerading prophet of God. And then, I love this, uh, Jeroboam sort of changes his tune. Look at verse 6. He says, Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. By the way, something very easily overlooked. I want you to notice that Jeroboam used the words, your God. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say our God. He knew that this was a prophet of the true God. And I think in front of everyone, this is a subtle statement on his part that his gods are powerless and this man's God is not. And what happened is, the prophet, we're told, interceded on his behalf and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. By the way, let me stop right here for an application I want you to imagine for a moment that that's just happened to you. You've been in rebellion against God. You are, from all appearances, the chief kahuna. You're answerable to no one. And then God suddenly gets your attention. Just as he got this man's attention through disfiguring his hand. And then... When you plead for healing, you're healed. It was a defining, seminal moment. Now, what would you do if that happened to you? I want you to notice what Jeroboam did. Drop down to verse 33. It says, after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. Wow you got to be kidding. Friend, if ever there was an illustration of the hard-heartedness of the sinner's heart, it's right here. But friend, before you're too hard on Jeroboam, can I ask you a question that only you can answer? When God's tried to get your attention through maybe a stint in the hospital Maybe a brush with death. Maybe a difficult period of time you went through. Maybe a shattered dream. And then God brought you through that experience. How did you respond to God moving and working in your life in a supernatural way? Put your name in verse 33. After this, Doug repented and obeyed and trusted and believed. Oh, really? You know, for Jeroboam, verse 33 reads, and I'm paraphrasing here, after this event, Jeroboam went back to his old ways, unmoved and unchanged. Again, only you can answer the question, when God has worked and moved in your life, Taking you through a hard time, a difficult time? How did you respond? Did you repent? Did you change? Did you believe? Did you trust? Well, notice what happens. We're back at the beginning of this story. 
Jeroboam, I think, in an effort to save face, tries to buy this man's loyalty and allegiance. Notice what he does in verse 7. The king said to the man of God, come home with me and have something to eat and, and, and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here, for I was commanded, there's our little phrase again, by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. This man has no fellowship with this idolatrous king because obedience to the word of God was not an option. Now, I wish like anything I could end this message right here. Wouldn't that be great? Man of God returns victorious to his hometown. But you know what? I can't do that. Because tragically, on the way home, this man of God is deceived by a prophet who long ago had compromised his role and his position. And this courageous prophet who had stood up to Jeroboam and obeyed God is soon going to disobey God. And he's going to die as a result of it. Look at verse 11. It says, now there was a certain old man, old prophet, living in Bethel, whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his son showed him which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his son, saddle up the donkey. And when they had saddled the donkey for him and mounted, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and he asked him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And the prophet said, come home with me and eat. You know, these verses tell us a lot about this prophet who was living there in Bethel. Let me point out three things that I think are important First of all, even though he was a prophet, he ignored his position as a prophet. I want you to notice that it says that he was old. Now, I'm not sure how old is, so I'm not even going to go there. But I suspect that he was probably old enough to have lived and ministered before the apostasy of Jeroboam before the division of the kingdom, before that false religion instigated by Jeroboam had taken root. And there he was living in Bethel as a prophet, and yet he never said a word against the evil that was taking place in his own community. Again, if you're taking notes, jot down 2 Chronicles 11. Because you read there that when the northern tribes split from the south and wicked king Jeroboam was chosen as king, all the priests and the Levites and the godly people who were living in the north abandoned their positions and possessions and they fled to the south to support Jeroboam who was the rightful king. But you know what? Not this guy. He stayed up north. 
And what happened is that Jeroboam replenished the clergy with unqualified volunteers. Now why? Why did this guy stay in Bethel? A center of idolatry in the northern kingdom. I think the answer is he sold out to Jeroboam. Maybe he was getting a pension from the king. Maybe he was unwilling to leave his possession and the wonderful house that, that he had there. I find it additionally quite revealing that he neglected his role because God had to send a prophet from Judah to rebuke Jeroboam because there wasn't a godly prophet in Israel. But not only did he neglect his role as a prophet of God, he also neglected his role as a godly father. You know, when you read verse 11, when we read it together, it says that his sons were at the altar dedication and they observed what that godly prophet had done as he spoke out against the king. And the question you have to ask and answer is, why did the dad let the kids go there? That was a pagan ritual. And the dad did nothing. You say, well, Doug, he was an old prophet. Maybe he couldn't move quite as easily as he once could. Maybe he was even bedridden. I don't know. Maybe he got injured when he was playing football in high school and his knee was shot and he needed a full knee replacement and he was waiting for that to take place. But you know what? That didn't stop him from standing up and telling his boys to saddle up the old donkey and going after this man and asking him to stay with him. But you know, there's a third thing that we can learn about this man. And that only, and that is that he disregarded the true revelation from God and he invented his own. You say, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 15. The prophet said, come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread and drink water with you in this place. God, God had clearly told him, verse 17, I have been told by, there's our little phrase, the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. And then what happens is this old prophet of God answered and he said, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God turned with him and ate and drank in his house. And as we're going to see in just a few minutes, the consequences were fatal. Let me just give some lessons by way of application because this passage really serves as a very, very uh, important warning that we should disregard and avoid the advice of others when that advice directly conflicts with what we already know to be the will of God. Even when that advice comes from a gray-headed prophet who seemingly bears dignity and reverence in his walk and in his speech, Listen, no relationship, no matter how meaningful, justifies disobedience. 
I, I find it interesting. And I let my imagination admittedly run wild on occasion, but that's what makes for hopefully good preaching. <laughs> I love the fact that he says, hey, buddy, you're a prophet. I'm a prophet. We're in this together. Where'd you go to seminary? I was in the class of odd eight. Oh, you were in the class of 09. You're kidding. I just graduated a few years ahead of you. We just missed each other. Who ordained you? You're kidding. Man, we're practically equals. Did you know Rabbi Benowitz? What a character. Oh, yeah, I know him too. Friend, can I just put it on the bottom shelf? Ministerial credentials are no guarantee that a person is speaking for God. Amen. Some clergy, some people, some religious people are just blind guides of the blind. And Satan is called an angel of what? Light. You know, I'm reminded of a book that was written a number of years ago now by a woman named Betty Edies. It was entitled, Embraced by the Light. And she supposedly had a near-death experience where she, among other things, was embraced by the light. And that light was supposedly Jesus himself who taught her, among other things, that all roads lead to heaven, that we are becoming divine, and all religions are pleasing to God. And sadly, her book was embraced by scores of scores of people in the religious community, and even some Christians were duped. And yet that book directly contradicts the Bible's themes on sin, redemption, heaven, and hell, and faith alone in Christ alone. Do you remember now several months ago when we started our series on the book of Galatians? And we looked at Galatians 1. It says, I am amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And we've talked about this. There at the church in Gal churches in Galatia, people were using the same terminology. They were talking about the same things, except they were taking it and they were twisting it and they were turning it around and rewriting it. And verse 8 says, But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have, what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And then he says the same thing again. Now Paul's writing this not to be mean, not to be ugly, but to protect Christians from falling into the trap that this faithful man fell into. Listen, no claim of authority justifies disobedience. And this prophet's claim that an angel appeared to him, contradicting clearly what God had told this prophet, was the means whereby his defenses were broken down. And it led him to disobedience. And the results, as we're going to see in just a moment, are tragic. And what's so unfortunate is that this kind of argument, this kind of heresy is causing people in our day to fall and be deceived. Mark it down. Every cult on the face of the earth is the result of someone claiming to have received new revelation from God. And in every case, that so-called truth directly contradicts what has already been revealed. 
And in the case of this man, he was lying. And the man of God from Judah had no business relying on secondhand report about an alleged angelic revelation when God had already made his will known to him. You know, as I was thinking about this, I realized that there is absolutely an authority crisis in the church today. And the problem is we have abandoned the one true reliable authority that is ours, and that is the Word of God. And friend, we can't let that happen. Can I just add another point, and it's a very important one, and that is that neither reason nor emotion justifies disobedience to the Word of God. I know that there are scores of emotional arguments out there. And God wants us to use our mind. He wants us to think things through. And our emotions at time can be a helpful guide. But they can never be allowed to take priority over the Word of God. And tragically, that is happening at an alarming rate. I, I don't need to get any more specific than that. But you know that today, reason and emotion are being used in a heavily orchestrated media campaign to convince people that aberrant behavior, immoral behavior, is perfectly normal. And many churches today are falling for it. Listen, when God's will is made clear, disobedience is taken seriously by God. I just want to read what happens next. Look at verse 20. It says, While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah, This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where, where God told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown down on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. The people who passed by saw the body thrown down there with the lion standing beside the body and they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. And as you read the rest of the chapter, you find that the old prophet, he goes and he gets that man's body. Amazingly, the lion didn't eat the man. Uh, clearly, this was a judgment by God upon this man for disobeying. And then he's buried there. Let me, let me just say this too. I am so grateful that God doesn't generally deal with disobedience as abruptly and as harshly today as he did in Jeroboam's day. I'm convinced if he did, my audience this morning would be quite small. And to be perfectly candid with you, I like you would not be around to fill this pulpit. But you know what? God doesn't act that way today. 
But that doesn't mean that he doesn't consider disobedience still a very serious offense. I believe with all of my heart and soul that broken lives, broken families, addictions, and wasted potential are the sad consequences of disobeying God's moral laws. And it would be dangerous indeed to conclude that God no longer cares when we violate his known will. You know, what, what did this guy do to deserve death? Friend, he disobeyed God's command. He was deceived by a lying prophet who, who provided false visions and false spirituality. He was masquerading as a prophet of God. And I have to ask myself the question, and I scratched my head. And I thought to myself, why wasn't he judged? I mean, the guy was a snake in the grass. He was a liar. I don't know. I wish he had been. But God chose to judge this man because he violated the clear directives of the Word of God. Let me conclude with a couple of applications. Number one, be alert to spiritual enemies and their purpose, which is to lead you astray, disobeying God's Word. And because that's the case, we need to stay focused. You know, it's easy to get sidetracked, is it not? You know, think about this, this prophet from Judah. As he was going back to his hometown, if he had just kept riding, focused on getting home, rather than stopping and sitting under an oak tree in Bethel, he would have avoided this disaster. Friend, don't get sidetracked in life. Stay focused. Be alert. Know that there are false teachers whose plan is to bring about your defeat. Now let me say one final thing, and that is this. I see no evidence in the church today that God is speaking in the same manner he spoke to Old Testament prophets. Don't go out there waiting for, you know, a dream or a vision or a voice. I had the strangest dreams last night. I got up this morning when the alarm sounded at 4.30, and I was actually going to write down those dreams because, you know, we often forget them. Trust me. God is not speaking through dreams today. I'm not sure if it was something that I ate or whatever, but believe me, God is not speaking through dreams today. Hebrews 1 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son. You know what that tells me? That tells me that Jesus is the ultimate revelation and we find truth about Jesus through the Bible, the written word of God. And while it's true, and we cannot deny this, that we can be led by the Spirit, and I've experienced it, and so hopefully of you, when God leads us by his Spirit, that leading, listen, is always personal. It's not for the direction of the entire church. And second... God will never give personal direction that contradicts the written word of God.
And so while God may give us guidance through his spirit, God normally speaks to the church through the Bible today, through the word of God, through the book. And you know what? The Bible contains all we need to know regarding how to live a godly life. It gives us all the doctrines we need to know. It tells us everything about who God is that we need to know. It tells us how we can have our sin problem solved and how we can spend eternity with him. And because God's spoken, it's our job to obey. And so I want to close by asking this question. Is there some clear truth from God's word that you've chosen to ignore? Maybe you're trumping God's word with some unique relationship or some false claim to authority. And because of that, you violated God's will by those reasons, or maybe it's because of reason and emotion. My advice to you, my pleading with you today, is to cease and desist immediately. To confess your disobedience, to commit yourself today to follow God's revealed will no matter what it takes or where it takes you. And let me also close by saying if you're here and you've never trusted Christ this morning, that's the place to start. The Bible says that before God we're all sinners. Our sin separates us from God. And Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross for your sins, my sins, the sins of the world. And he asks us to trust Jesus Christ. And so if you've never done that, we invite you to do so. Let's pray. Father, we know from experience that we cannot obey as we should. We know that we're incapable because of our tendency towards sin. And so we ask that by the power of the Spirit of God, you would make it possible for us to live in full and complete surrender and obedience to the Word of God. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, help us to surrender our hearts and lives completely to your control. Thank you for this passage of scripture. We pray that our eyes would have been opened and our hearts and lives challenged to live more in obedience to you. And we pray as God's people towards that end, in Jesus' name, and everybody agreed and said, amen.